0: As you're seated, if you turn then to Exodus 34 and verse 6, we'll return to our series on the Lord's self-proclamation. And so to focus our attention, we'll read from verse 4 through verse 8. Speaking of Moses, we read, And he hewed two tables of stone like unto the first. And Moses rose up early in the morning and went up unto Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand the two tables of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful, and gracious, long suffering, and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation. And Moses made haste, and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. It's particularly in verse 4 where the Lord is proclaiming His name that we wish to give our attention. It is here we see Jehovah proclaims the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious. We ought to remember that God has communicated at all to us in any fashion whatsoever is indeed a privilege. And so were we without the Bible and we were exclusively held captive to the light of nature, we would be a privileged people because we who are unworthy of it, who are infinitely beneath God, would be shown something of His eternity, His power, and His glory. It's a privilege even to know such truths. But that He has communicated to us of His goodness and of His grace and of the salvation and the way of salvation is not only a privilege indeed, but a privilege most highly to be prized. For the pagan and unbelieving one who is without the Bible has cause to praise God and yet, we'll never have even the opportunity of salvation. But we, to whom the Bible has come, have been given not only that which confirms the light of nature, but which discloses to us the way of pardon and peace and salvation. Well, already in our series on this passage, we've considered the fact of revelation and that this revelation is a display of God's condescension that He who is infinitely above us has been pleased to draw near to us and communicate in ways that you and I can understand. Now, surely He can't, as it were, comprehensively uh, communicate all that He is to us, but, as we've seen, He has been pleased to communicate those truths needed for salvation and particularly He's been pleased to show us the way of salvation. We've seen indeed his transcendence in his self-proclamation as he says, Jehovah, that is the Lord, Jehovah God. Jehovah is that word which is most intimately God's name and refers back to when Moses at the fire, of the bush said, and you know, who am I supposed to say sent me? Tell them I am that I am hath sent me. And here is the name that represents the same. But then as we saw, He is merciful. A word which speaks of His tenderness, His compassion toward our miseries, that when it is that our miseries are before Him, He is one who is compassionate toward the same. Well, we come to a word which not only here, but frequently in the Scriptures, is joined together with His mercy. And that is His grace, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious. Now there's in some sense a way in which these are used synonymously, but as with synonyms, there is often a nuance of difference between them. So we can use synonyms in English and in some sense mean the same thing, but if you get more exact, you'll see that instead of, as it were, a one-to-one same thing, identity, there's often an overlap of the ideas that allows them to be synonymous and yet still have a nuance of difference between them. And the same is true with reference to God regarding His mercy and His grace. We ought to remember that these are the refracted light of that one comprehensive truth that God is proclaiming, I will cause all of my goodness to pass before Thee, as He said in Exodus 33. So His mercy is something of His goodness. His grace is something of His goodness. His long-suffering is something of His goodness. He's abundant in these things. He keeps mercy. He forgives sin and so on. All of these things are aspects of His goodness. And so it is with His grace. Today we look at His grace as He here says of Himself that He is gracious. The word is intimately connected with His mercy. And as it appears, it's an adjective in our text. that's taken from a verb. And the verb you can see in the previous chapter when it's translated in verse 19 of Exodus 33 that He will be gracious. Now it appears in form the same for us, but the will be gracious is representative of a Hebrew verb. And so this is The adjective in Exodus 34, which is in its verb form in Exodus 33, the verb itself means to show favor. It has the notion of doing something. Notice the the notion, he will be gracious. He will be doing something. And in particular, the word comes from one, meaning to stoop in kindness to an inferior. Now, this is a subject that our culture today doesn't like to entertain. For instance, we get to the fifth commandment and in our catechisms it talks about the duties of superiors, inferiors, and equals. In our culture, Christ foul and says, what are you talking about superiors and inferiors? Don't you dare tell me that I'm beneath anybody. And yet, surely no one will have any problem whatsoever with acknowledging that God is transcendently and infinitely superior to everything else such that, we are necessarily infinitely inferior to Him. What's astounding is this word gracious, as here in Exodus 34.6, is exclusively used of God. God is gracious. There are ways, of course, that we are to be like God in this. But it seems to be so reserved of Him because it is something that only He can show in the way that He shows it He alone is able to stoop in such a way as none other can. Perhaps we get a hint of this when in the parable of the man who was indebted to his master with a debt he would never be able to repay, was forgiven freely. His master stooping down, as it were, in a way that this man never could have uh, imagined. And yet, the audacity of the man that he wouldn't forgive his neighbor uh, a far inferior debt he owed. Whatever the case, here we find God taking up a word which is testifying of His drawing near to be kind to those who are infinitely beneath Him. And so you can see this notion, for instance, in a number of places in Scripture. Jonah 4 and verse 2. It's at the end of the book where Jonah, you remember, receives his initial commission. And what does he do? He flees the entirely opposite direction from where he was supposed to go. And it strikes us as astounding because Jonah's a prophet. Why would he turn from obeying the Lord? Well, Jonah himself tells why he did. Because so soon as God gives repentance to Nineveh, that wicked capital of that wicked empire, Jonah says, see, isn't this what I said? I knew that you were going to do this. Because... The Lord is gracious. Think of that in context. Jonah was so persuaded that the Lord was gracious unto the undeserving, the infinitely, not only beneath Him, but infinitely repulsive to Him. That he said, so soon as I got the commission, I already knew what was going on. I knew that so soon as I would go and I would say, yet... Four days, yet, yet a handful of days, and what will happen? Nineveh will be destroyed. I knew that though that was my commission, that because you are gracious, you would indeed bring them to repentance and forgiveness. It's used elsewhere of non-saving issues, and so it shows us that the idea of God's graciousness is not exclusive to salvation, though it is the emphasis throughout Scripture. For instance, in Exodus chapter 22, we can see this in verse 27. Speaking of your neighbor who is poor, it says, listen, in verse 26, If thou would all take thy neighbor's raiment, his clothing, to pledge, thou shalt deliver it unto him by that the sun goeth down. For that is his covering only. It is his raiment for his skin. Wherein shall he sleep? And it shall come to pass when he crieth unto me that I will hear, for I am gracious. The same word as Exodus 34, verse 6. What's God's point? He's saying, I remember the poor. I remember their need. When they cry to me, such is my nature that I am willing to stoop down to them and provide them the temporal care and judgment against you who would be wicked against them as they so stand in need of. So the point is, this word gracious has the notion not only of God's tenderness, mercy, His compassion, and so on, but His taking of action toward those that are beneath Him. And so, it is no wonder then that the word itself and the concept is preeminently used of salvation. So we saw in Romans 9, uh, the verse from Exodus 33, verse When when the Lord's testifying and He says in verse 19, I will be gracious to Him, I will be gracious. Paul uses that in Romans 9 and verse 15, speaking of the way of salvation toward the elect. What's the point? The point is that in the Lord proclaiming Himself to be gracious, His revealing of Himself to us, He's showing to us that He is one who delights to stoop down to those who are beneath Him to do good to them, whether in temporal things, like for instance, uh, the poor one who is afflicted with oppression, or in spiritual and eternal things, which is the main emphasis throughout the Scriptures, when it is that he saves sinners. So we wish to look at this, and as we do, we'll discover a tremendous foundation from which we then can appeal in hope to God regarding our own Weaknesses, infirmities, and even our sins, seeing that God is gracious. Consider then three things. Firstly, the source of grace. Secondly, the distributing of grace. And thirdly, the blessedness of grace. The source, the distributing, and the blessedness. Firstly, then, the source of grace. We need not be long in this first point because it's quite simple and Evident in the text itself. Notice it's God proclaiming his name. And as we've already taken this up in previous uh, sermons, he's testifying of what he is. He is gracious. This is something of what God is. It regards his nature. It's not extrinsic to him that he takes up on occasion, it is part of what he is. He is gracious. And so in other words, the source of grace is God Himself. It's not outside of Him. It's not a concept beyond Him. It's not as if we can say, well, you know, there's grace and God happens to be gracious. No, the source of grace and any understanding of grace starts with God Himself because He is the source of it all. So in other words, the source of grace is God himself it's not something above him it's not something beside him it's certainly not something beneath him it is within him his own purpose his own plan his own determination we can add to this to clarify it it is god himself sovereignly this is an important point that empties us of all personal hope of attaining his grace In our own works, because his grace is not founded upon or moved by our works and actions. This is what Paul makes so explicit when he speaks of the same in Romans chapter 9, as we pointed out, just to see it once more. Paul appeals to Exodus 33 when God uses the verbal form, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And having quoted that, he then says in Romans chapter 9 and at verse 16, So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. And then he gives the contrast, right? So he's saying, in case you don't understand positively what I mean, let me show you negatively as well. So, he's given this example, of course, through uh, the sons of Isaac, Jacob, and Esau. Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. This isn't a word that simply means I loved Jacob, but I loved Esau lesser than Jacob. It is a word that connotes a despising of Esau, an appointing of Esau unto his just deserving. And so he points this out saying, listen, this was before They had done anything good or bad. And as the context demonstrates, it was not based upon anything that they were seen to have done in the future. Because as Paul says in verse 11, that this was the purpose of God according to election. It was an eternal work of God. An eternal rather uh, decree of God. And so then he goes further. In verse 17, to make it clearer still, the Scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for the same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy. And now Paul clarifies, and whom he will, he hardeneth. And so in other words, God stands absolutely, entirely Sovereign over His giving of grace. This is true of His temporal grace, what we'll talk about later on. But here you'll notice the context is specifically dealing with saving grace. So, Esau is rejected. Uh, Jacob is uh, uh, received. Why? Well, not because God saw Esau would do this and Jacob would do that but rather the two do those things because in eternity past, God had so determined to be merciful, gracious, saving to Jacob while to condemn Esau for his sin. Lest anyone would argue against him, Paul makes this quite clear. Verse 19, "...you'll say to me then, why doth he yet find fault who hath resisted his will?" And Paul, who was so clear in tenderness and compassion, we sense something, do we not, of his discerning of a wicked thought in the question. Nay, but, O man. What a contrast. O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Aren't there many who reply against God today? people in all of their reasonings and all of their pride and all of their arrogance. Men, women, children, adults, theologians, so-called, godless pagans, they all think I've got a just argument against God. And Paul says, and he could have left it here, oh man, who are you to speak against God? But he doesn't just leave it there. He goes further and shows the prerogative of God that He is sovereign over all of His determining. And so it is in verses 22 and 23. Well, the point, of course, is this. That all grace, and specifically by way of emphasis, that of saving grace is flowing from the determinate counsel foreknowledge, and perfect sovereignty of of God Himself. That's the cause. That's the source. There is no other. If you read the life of David Brainerd, this well-known missionary who died young and whose biography or journal and diary was edited by Jonathan Edwards in his first chapter, which chronicles his birth to his conversion and his early part of pursuing studies for the ministry, he chronicles the bulk of that section dealing with dealing with his conviction, super deep conviction, conviction that most of us have only heard of. And he's saying, for months, I thought I was better. I thought I because w- I started to pray more. I started to read the Bible more. I started to cut off certain sins more. Everyone around me thought I was converted, but then he said, unbeknownst to me, lurking within was a self-righteous principle thinking that somehow I was going to bargain with God that He would, as it were, bring me in, and so on. It was not until he was shown by the power of God's Spirit, the absolute sovereignty of God, that he was emptied of all hope. This is something that even Jonathan Edwards acknowledged as a boy. He said that he hated the notion of a sovereign God because it absolutely stripped from Him any hope of his own doing to attain something from God. If God is absolutely sovereign, well, that necessarily means that we have no control over our lives. That's the very message that proud, fallen man despises. They may be beautiful, They may be civil. They may be moral. They may be religious. They may be blasphemous. They may be uh, wicked in their actions, words, and so on. But left to themselves, all men, however refined, however civil, however religious, despise this truth. And truth yet it is. God, and God only, is the sovereign source of all grace. Both common... And saving. And so it is that God proclaims his name. There's nothing within others. There's nothing others do to qualify in order, as it were, to activate the source of grace because it is entirely and exclusively in God himself. Well, secondly, then, the distributing of grace. As we've noted, all is according to God's sovereignty. We have to remember this is according to His goodness. And this is an important thought. The distributing of His grace is because He is good. That's all. It's not because man is good. It's not because man or woman is deserving. It's not because this person's better or that person's worse. In the grand scheme of things, the distributing of grace is because God sovereignly is good. Now, we should make a distinction. Some, as the Scriptures indicate, that he gives is common to all sorts of men. And so we can think theologically, both the elect and the reprobate. So you can see this even in the life of Jacob and Esau. So Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. And yet Esau is given many good things in this life. He wasn't given that because he deserved any of it but God rather dispensed good things to Esau. We can see this with reference in, or in the Scriptures other places. So there is a way of speaking of God's grace that is common both to the elect and reprobate, but we must be clear, none of this is saving. None of it is of that type of grace. So there is, in other words, a distinction of God's grace, the Bible indicates. We saw that, for instance, in Exodus earlier when reference was made to the same word used there in chapter 22, verse 27, that He will care and provide for the oppressed poor. Why? Because He's gracious. He's not talking about salvation there in the way of being forgiven of sins and other such things. But other, He is yet being generous and kind and doing good unto those Beneath him. Well, notice, for instance, that God's kindness is shown to both wicked, reprobate, and believing, elect ones, as Christ indicates in Matthew chapter five, Matthew chapter five, and at verse forty-five. This being a call to us to be good unto both the wicked and the righteous as well. So, in X, or Matthew five forty-four. Christ says, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Just capture this in your mind. Christ is saying, do good to your enemies. Effectively, he's saying, be gracious to your enemies. And then notice what he says, that ye may be the children of your Father, which is in heaven. For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and the good and sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. And so he's saying, you're to be like your father, Verse 48. And so as he shows kindness to even his enemies, so you are to show kindness to your enemies. Now, we realize this. None of those things that he shows are saving kindnesses. But that does nothing to diminish the fact that they are genuine kindnesses still. You can understand this, as we'll see in a moment, just to ask the question, what is it that unbelieving people deserve? And the answer, of course, is they deserve instantaneous, everlasting, infinite, agonizing judgment and God's wrath. That's the only thing that every single person deserves. And yet you look and you see genuine kindnesses displayed, as Christ indicates, Matthew 5.45. None of that's saving, but it is nonetheless His goodness. And therefore, we are called to be good, and even as Christ says, to love our enemies in that way. It's not a saving love that God has toward the enemies, but it is nonetheless a true kindness to them. You remember in Matthew 20 that Christ says that many are called few are chosen. What a privilege it is that there is a sincere gospel offer going forth even to the wicked and that they hear the privileged truths of the gospel, which objectively is a privilege. Think of it this way. It would be a privilege for you to see priceless works of art. You may not enjoy it. You may not find art all that amazing. But all of these precious things, it would be a privilege for you to see it. It would be a privilege for someone to paint such a, a work, a master art a artist to do so, and to show it to you. That would be a privilege. So it is a privilege for undeserving sinners to hear of Christ. That's a privilege. That's a kindness. That's something that no one deserves. Elect, reprobate all people Deserve none of that, and that they hear it is the exposure to the wisdom and the power of God, which is in itself a great blessing. This common grace as well regards those non saving and yet real works of the Spirit in the reprobate. So, for instance, notice in Hebrews in chapter 6 and there at verse 4 we find that there is a spiritual work in the unbeliever, not all unbelievers, but some, which is a striving of the Holy Spirit. Not saving, but nonetheless real. And so it is in verse 4, Hebrews 6, "...it is impossible for those who were once enlightened, who have tasted of the heavenly gift, and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost, and have tasted the good Word of God, and the powers of the world to come." they shall fall away to renew them again to repentance. Now this is a sober passage, but you'll simply notice this, that these are receiving privileges for the moment, that they should have, as it were, a knowledge of certain things, not saving, that they should have a taste of certain things, not saving. These things are true privileges. Our confession speaks of these as, the common operations of the Spirit of God. And so, that God works conviction in one is a kindness. Many make this point because He's checking the conscience, preventing them from certain sins, which in the end, actually keeps them from experiencing even more heinous sins, which would then cause them to experience even greater judgment in hell it's a kindness in these things that the Lord does, and so there is some a sort of grace that theologians call common grace that is common to all men, elect and reprobate it's unsaving, and we have to emphasize this. It should be noted that there are those who reject the term, and this came out of a particular controversy in the Dutch Reformed uh, tradition, and they said, listen, you can't talk about sa- or common grace because grace is always saving. Well, the problem with that is, first, biblical. Because when you look at Exodus 22, the word gracious is being used of God in His general care for those who are struck by poverty, who stand in need of help. That's not saving. But it is God being gracious. Moreover, we see genuine activities of God toward His enemies who shall be destroyed, which is called kindness. It's not a facade. It's not God acting like He's kind and then doing something else. It's a genuine kindness of the Lord. Yet, it is not saving. So in other words, He's chosen to give a form of kindness to some which no one deserves while withholding the most rich, Kindness from them. This is nothing that anyone balks at in this world. So, for instance, if a husband gives his wife a pearl necklace, no one says that's unfair if the husband gives his enemy a piece of food. It's a kindness that he's done so, but the rich treasure to his wife everyone understands. Well, the same is true with reference to the elect and the reprobate. God genuinely gives good things to the unbelieving and the reprobate, those whom He has appointed unto damnation. That they don't benefit by it is no indication that God is being unkind. Moreover, that they despise the same indeed is a testimony of their wickedness. Just to see historically, that these are well-weighed words. These are the terms of people like John Calvin, John Owen, Peter Van Maastricht, and the Puritans in general, and our Scottish Covenanters and Free Church Fathers. The acknowledging of common grace is not just a theological structure, it is a Reformed structure, and most importantly, it represents the Bible's teaching. Though we've noted this, some is common to all sorts, outward mercies, uh, even mental and religious things. There is another special grace that is only given to some, namely the elect. And this, without any hesitation, is the emphasis of the Scriptures. And so we see that in Exodus 33, we see it in Romans 9, we see it in Ephesians 1. We see this throughout the Scriptures. That the emphasis of God's grace is that saving sort. So, though He shows kindness even to the reprobate, is a kindness indeed worthy of praise. But the reason there is such an emphasis on the saving sort of grace that He gives is because that is far more astounding and it is the main message of the Scripture. It's what God Himself is emphasizing to Moses. That I'm gracious unto salvation, to forgive sin, iniquity and transgression. So we saw it in Romans nine. You can see the notion of this saving grace as well in Ephesians chapter one. Ephesians and chapter one. Here Paul is setting the foundation for all the blessings that the Ephesians and every other believer enjoys. And he says, for instance, in verse 3, that our, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings. Think of the way those words are using. He's blessed us. He's given good things to us with all spiritual blessings, all spiritual good things in heavenly places according as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved in whom we have redemption through His blood, forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace, and so on. Notice, there's no mistaking it. Paul in chapter 1 of Ephesians is speaking of saving grace, heavenly blessings, blessings in Christ, the redemption of our sins, the forgiveness of our sins, the riches of His grace, all of this coming to us through and by the Mediator and enjoyed by the gracious gift of faith, all of which again is emphasized to have come according to the purpose of God. The good pleasure, verse 9, which He hath purposed, notice the language, in Himself. So the source of saving grace is all within Himself. Right? This is, of course, that unthinkable kindness that the God against whom we've sinned should have purposed to lavish upon us not just temporal mercies and kindnesses, not just intellectual benefits and so on, but that He should bring about such grace as would save us, so as to reconcile us, to forgive our sins, to bring us into fellowship, lasting, everlasting fellowship with God. This is, of course, the astonishing fact of His grace. Why Paul doubtlessly uses such language as the riches of His grace. Verse 6, the glory of His grace. So when we think of grace, it's right for us to make this distinction. Common grace is that goodness God gives common to all sorts of men, reprobate and elect. It includes temporal mercies, bodily mercies, intellectual mercies, even religious mercies and so on, but none of which are saving. Whereas to the elect and the elect only is given that special grace, that saving grace, whereby they are brought into faith in Christ and saved. Notice, God is the source of all of that. So when we look at all of the temporal mercies that people enjoy, we have to trace all of that back to God and say God has distributed these things. Now we have to understand that that's no indication of His saving purpose to them. But it is nonetheless a goodness of God to them. And then when we look at the grand theater of His Glorious grace and the riches thereof. It is with reference to His saving grace, which is exclusive to His chosen people, chosen from before the foundation of the world. All of that comes from the sovereign purpose of God. This leads us then to the blessing of grace. How can we understand the blessing, the blessedness of grace? Perhaps we can do it this way. Think for a moment, if God were not gracious. So if we had that ability to conceive of God in His glory, God in His power, God in His wisdom, God in all of these things, and yet if He weren't gracious, what would that mean? It would mean this, that no one who's ever sinned would ever receive the slightest good ever. There would not be a whisper of goodness, kindness, or enjoyment. There would not be the slightest cause of a smile in anyone's life who is guilty before God. Nothing at all. Nothing temporal. There wouldn't be wine making glad the heart of man. There wouldn't be enjoyment of marriage. There wouldn't be the enjoyment of sunrises and sunsets. There wouldn't be the enjoyment of flowers and birds and other such things. There wouldn't be the satisfaction of a drink of water. There wouldn't be the pat on the back from someone encouraging us. There would be nothing temporal, nothing physical, nothing common at all. Surely, there would be nothing eternal or spiritual or saving either. But here's the point. If God were not gracious, everyone who's guilty of sin would instantaneously, everlastingly answer for their sins before a holy God. So when you think of it that way, you begin to get a glimpse of how wondrous the fact is that God is gracious. Because if God dealt with you and me without any aspect of grace, the only experience we would ever enjoy if we could say it that way would be the unending misery of what our sins have earned before Him. Which then gives us some cause to say every enjoyment I've ever had is only because the Lord is gracious. If God were not gracious, you as a sinner would have no good at all in this life or in the life to come. But the blessing of grace can be stated positively. Because God is gracious, you both have enjoyed many things and have the hope of enjoying many more things. Because why is it that God is proclaiming His name? He's not just doing it, of course, as some objective testimony, but He's rather revealing Himself, as His word elsewhere says, that we would learn of these things and understand Him and thus turn to Him. So He's disclosing to us this fact, not just as an understanding for us as why we've enjoyed anything good, temporal, common mercies, common graces, or special saving graces, but He's also, as it were, setting a foundation for us to say, when you understand the wickedness, the vileness, the putrid reality of your sin, yet because of what I am, you don't yet have a cause to despair. This is something that, you know, worldly selfish, you know, wicked minds don't understand. They hear a sermon like this, they deal with passages like this and they say, "Well, God's making too much of this little idea, you know, sin, what's the big deal?" But when the spirit opens one's eyes to see the wickedness, the vileness of their sin, and they realize it's against a holy God that I have sinned. It's against God who is most holy. And you think of how Isaiah says it, woe is me, I'm undone, for I'm a man of unclean lips. He doesn't say I'm a man of adultery. He doesn't say I'm a man of idolatry. He doesn't say I'm a man of murder or of stealing. He simply points to his lips and he says my speech is unclean. Therefore, in the presence of a holy God, I stand undone. I stand Ready for condemnation. When the sinner is brought to that realization, yea, when a believer like Isaiah is brought to that realization, all false pretenses are instantly abandoned. There's no hope for my reforming of myself, there's no hope of my attaining of anything. I've all of a sudden seen all of my hope that I thought I was holding on to vanish, and it's no more. I can't look to myself as better than others. I can't look to myself as what I'll do in the future. I can't see any of it because all that I see right now is that God is holy and I've sinned against Him. And I've seen the infinite reprehensible fact that I whom a creature who have been given the privilege of knowing something about God have had the audacity to turn against Him and assert my pretended rights against holy sovereign God. I stand condemned. All hope is gone. And at that moment, God comes and says, but remember, yes, I'm holy, but I'm also the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious. And there's this awakening that can take place to say, it's not in me, it's in God that is my hope. It's not in what I will do or what I can do or what I think I might do or what I think I have done or what I have done. My only hope is in God being generously kind to me. And it starts to reorient our soul to look to God and say, I am unworthy of the slightest good. Isn't this in fact what we find in the Scriptures? I'm not worthy of the least of Thy mercies. Not the least, but I challenge you to search your heart and see if you think that's true. Because most of us think that we deserve the least of His mercies. Most of us show that when we start to complain against God. God, you know, why are you doing this to me? You know, God, why are you taking that from me? God, why are you giving this to me? I don't want that. Why have you taken this? I wanted that. Why aren't you doing it my way? Why aren't you making this work out the way I want it? And all of that, at the back of it, has this thought, I deserve something from You. I deserve kindness from people. I deserve kindness from You. I deserve the richest and the best and the fullest of mercies. But surely, God, I deserve something that's small and easy, when we understand the truth both of our sin and the nature of God, we have to come to terms with this. We deserve nothing from God but judgment. It's the only thing we deserve. We don't deserve health. We don't deserve pleasure. We don't deserve happiness. We don't deserve a spouse, a child, a parent. School, learning, finances, food, drink, none of it is deserved by any of us. And then when we come again to the most fundamental need, I don't deserve anything of salvation. Nothing I do can get me to that point where I finally got my shoulders up above the rest of the mass of humanity, and now God's going to say, oh you, now you're okay. No. The teaching and the fact of God being gracious is a call for us to abandon every self-righteous enterprise there is. Whether as an unbeliever, it won't be your prayers and sighings and tears and efforts and readings and worship and books and fellowship and all of these things. None of that is going to move you up in the scale so that God now says, now I'll be gracious. Because He will be gracious to whom He will be gracious. It's not to Him that wills, not to Him that runs, but unto God who has mercy. And then people say, "Well, wow, that means it's out of my hands. And for the first time, perhaps, someone is getting the point. It is absolutely and always has been entirely out of your hands. But, this truth then brings us an actual cause of hope. Because God is saying, look again at what I am. I am gracious. So what do we do then? As an unbeliever, we start to say, Lord, the only thing I deserve, though I ought to reform my life, though I ought to read the Bible, though I ought to read these books, and I'm reading these books, and I'm praying, and I'm doing all these things, the only thing all of that deserves as it comes from one who does not love God is damnation. My only hope still is that you would be gracious. That's the petition That should be in the mouth of every unbeliever. But brethren, believers, this foundation should be your foundation still. That in your prayers, you don't start to bring in all of your attainments and bring in all of your diligence and bring in all of your works and bring in your patience and bring in your long-suffering and bring in your improvements and bring in how long all these things have been going. You abandon all of that and you look to God to say, God, my God, you've said you'll be gracious. You said you are gracious. So I look away from all of these things, and I look exclusively to You, and I say, Oh God, for the glory... Think of the way this is worded. For the glory of Your name, be gracious to me. Why is that a petition in the Scriptures? Why is that so regular in our language of prayer? It's because God is proclaiming His name. This is what He is. He is gracious, so we learn to cast all upon Him. And Brethren, finally, here is the reason for your constant thanksgiving your constant reason of lowliness before God, and yet your constant exaltation of soul as well by Him. Not one good thing you've ever received have you ever deserved from God. And yet God has given it freely. Let that sink in your mind. Every single good thing you've enjoyed is solely exclusively because God determined to be gracious to you. If that's the case, then every temporal mercy should be a shout to our hearts to say, I need to thank God. And every saving mercy is all the more so. But you see, this is where we're brought low. And yet, as the Lord says, the one who humbles himself shall be exalted. The path downward is actually the path of our souls being exalted. Where we humble ourselves and say, God, none of it is my deserving. None of it. And yet we start to find the enjoyment of the Lord's grace to us. That He has been gracious. The abundance of evidence surrounds us, engulfs us, none more clearly than the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. That Christ has been given to us. Why? Because He's gracious. Christ has been proclaimed to us. Why? Because He's gracious. When we start to understand this, we start to understand how the reality can exist at one and the same time of the most lowliest of saints before the Lord being the most joyous of saints before the Lord because they've learned something of the grace of God through Jesus Christ. Rice, would you stand with me?